Conversations with the Mind podcast, where we explore consciousness through conversations with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet, and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence. Hello, all, and welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, Shane LeMaster. My co-host is joining me today in the office, Mr. Ty, uh, my Ridgeback dog. So you may hear him from time to time uh, chime in with some squeaking, which he tends to do. Uh, I think that that's uh, his way of singing. Um, So anyway, he may chime in. So I want to welcome you all back to Conversations with the Mind if you've been here before, and welcome to all you new listeners as well. Uh, please, please go check us out on YouTube. We have a uh, YouTube page, and that's the Mind Ops YouTube page. It's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S. And there you can find all of the videos for these podcasts. So if you want to watch the podcast and add a whole new dimension to your listening experience, go check that out, the Mind Ops YouTube page. Also check out our website, www.mind-ops.com. That's mindops.com. There you can find all sorts of information as well as links to the podcast. You can find all sorts of information about uh, the professional counseling services uh, that I provide. And you can reach out to me on there as well. There is a comments section of that website. And uh, if you want to reach out to me about the podcast, um, please do it through there. That would be awesome. I'd love to hear feedback from all of you. Um, so wanted to uh, want to let you guys know, like, life has been super hectic, super busy. That's why I haven't put a podcast out in a couple months. So I apologize. I know I've been itching to create one, and I know that you all have been itching to hear one. Um, I hear feedback from a number of you asking, when are you going to do the next one? When are you going to do the next one? Well, uh, finally found some some time uh, to get this done. So, again, welcome to the podcast. Uh, you are in the right place. And, uh, yeah, let's get into it.
Okay, so today's good news story comes from the goodnewsnetwork.org. And this was on, I found this on the coattails of uh, discovering some really disturbing information about uh, COVID and these masks that we all are required to wear. Um, found that in 2020, uh, there were 1.6 billion disposable masks that entered our oceans. Um, I don't have the figures or I haven't found figures on how many have entered our oceans in 2021. But uh, if it followed the same trend, which I assume it would, I find these masks everywhere on the ground, which is unfortunate. But, you know, that's billions and billions of uh, masks in the ocean. Uh, U.S. News also put out that millions of tons of COVID masks, as well as uh, those, um, you know, nitrile gloves, latex gloves, uh, end up in the ocean because of this. So terrible, terrible consequences of COVID uh, that could impact us all in the environment quite significantly. So... This uh, good news story, again, comes from the Good News Network, and the title of the article reads, New plant-based biodegradable masks close the recycling loop with free return of used ones. Now, what caught my eye right away was this plant-based biodegradable piece, and I'm all about sustainability. I have lots of friends in that industry, and it's just fascinating. Um, it's fascinating for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's fascinating to to get to, you know, sort of understand how we can make everyday products biodegradable. And it's also amazing how, you know, we have these technologies to do this, and yet so many manufacturers still choose to do it the old way, uh, ways that cause, um, oh, those are those are my puppies in the background, uh, ways that cause uh, harm to the environment. Um, so this company, uh, Let's see. Let me. Uh, I don't want to read the whole article to you, but I definitely want to give you a good synopsis. Um, let's see. So they're they're touted as single use masks. Um, let me see. So the company that's making these, G ninety five, and they are formerly known as BioScarf, says is so committed to sustainability they began developing a special version of their filtration material after seeing the damage that discarded PPE was doing to our oceans since the pandemic began. Uh, again, you know, this is this stuff should be obvious, but not many of us hear about it. Um, so everything from the ear loops to the nose bridge made entirely using plant-based PLA materials, which is 100% biodegradable. This includes the bags that they ship in, the individual wrappers for each product, and the G95 filtration technology built in. Um, but the second part of that title of the uh, the article is how the company is like kind of going beyond um, just sustainability. So they're offering this great program. Uh, when you're done with the mask, instead of throwing it away, just put it in the envelope that it arrived in and mail it back to the company for free recycling. Um, additionally, the company says they will give you a $1 store credit for every mask that you return for a responsible disposal. So you can build up quite a credit, um, you know, and put it towards more PPE, more protection for yourself. Uh, just, I thought it was so cool, um, this this idea for biodegradable masks, um, you know, and also wanted to spread some awareness to you listeners that uh, that's, these masks don't just end up in landfills. They're ending up in our oceans, so please be a little bit more mindful, if you aren't already, of where you dispose your mask, 
um, and whether you're using a reusable mask, a biodegradable mask, or just a one-time throwaway mask that is just going to cause some litter. So, stuff to think about. Okay, so what has been on my mind recently? Like I said in the introduction for the podcast, man, I've just been so busy. Right in the middle of this uh, PhD program, I just uh, took my preliminary examination um, which included, you know, writing a 40-page paper, including a literature review and uh, designing a uh, psychedelic study uh, into the mystical experience, um, you know, with some other uh, facets to it. I don't want, I don't want to reveal my secrets quite yet. Um, but yeah, I've been working on that for the past few months, and man, has it been intense, putting hundreds and hundreds of hours into this paper. And uh, because in our program, you don't pass the exam, you're out, you know, um, there's no continuing into, into the uh, last half of the PhD. So I turned it in over Christmas um, and got what's called a revise and resubmit, which means that uh, I take the feedback that my committee has given me and I have 90 more days to make revisions and then resubmit it, hopefully for a pass. And it is a pass fail. So keeping my fingers crossed, please keep your fingers crossed for me too. I would like to continue through the PhD program and f- graduate eventually. Um, but got to make it through this, uh, this stage first. And uh, so I've been working on that a lot, but man, some other things have come up too, that have really, really taken my energy, really taken my time. And one of those things is, uh, and I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this, but one of my best friends from childhood, uh, same age as me was recently diagnosed with a very rare form of cancer called olfactory neuroblastoma. Um, and he and his wife have put up a GoFundMe for his treatment, okay? I'm going to read you this description. Uh, he has really been on my mind, him and his family have really been on my mind for the last few months, uh, you know, as, as he undergoes these treatments at such a young age. And it, it certainly makes me think about my own mortality um, and the mortality of those that I love um, and care for. So I'm going to read this very brief description for the GoFundMe and then go check out in the description of this podcast. I will certainly put a link to the GoFundMe so that if you want to, you can contribute to his fight uh, against this rare cancer. So, all right, it says, uh, Hi, friends and family. Jeff Nickham is a dear friend, father to a four-month-old boy, Keith, and a three-year-old daughter, Allie, and husband to his wonderful wife, Amelia. Jeff recently discovered that he has a very rare form of cancer called olfactory neuroblastoma, a large tumor that has grown into his nasal cavity. Unfortunately, this tumor was caught too late, and the cancer has spread throughout his head and into his lymph nodes and is continuing to spread at a rapid rate. Jeff and Amelia are trying to schedule emergency surgery to have surgeons remove the tumor immediately and to start radiation and chemotherapy. Healthcare costs are denying initial appointments, such as x-rays, uh, needed, etc., and might possibly deny the emergency surgery as well. Uh, on top of this, travel costs back and forth from Leadville, which is where they live, and Denver, where he's getting his care. Additionally, childcare, lodging in Denver, etc., expenses will quickly add up. This GoFundMe has started to first please provide prayers, positive vibes, love, and thoughts to Jeff, Amelia, and the entire family as they are going through this horrendous, shocking, and very unexpected situation. And second, if you are able to donate any money to help offer any support as they start this journey, anything from $5 to however much you can provide would be greatly appreciated. 
Those who know Jeff already know the kind, loving, caring, and wonderful person he is. Please join Jeff and his beautiful family in the fight against this terrible cancer. Um, and uh, I don't see when the GoFundMe was started, uh, but there's just been an amazing uh, outpouring of generosity um, from Jeff's family and Jeff's friends uh, because, you know, insurance is just giving him the runaround. They're not covering any of his treatments uh, for this very expensive um, cancer treatment. And like I said, he's just a young guy. We want to keep him around for a really long time. He has been a, an extremely important um, person in my life as well as in my brother's life. Uh, Jeff has been a best friend to us, you know, since our teenage years. And uh, his impact on our families and on our community has been immense. Um, so we are doing our best to raise whatever money we can to help Jeff uh, fight this cancer and overcome it. Um, so like I said, I'll put that link in the description. Another thing that's been on my mind recently, and this was this was hard, this was huge. Um, but my big uh, Mastiff, my 150-pound Mastiff tank, uh, passed away the day after Thanksgiving um, of 2021. He uh, was lethargic for a few days uh, and developed um, a pneumonia in his lungs. Um, we decided to take him to the emergency room one night when we were just noticing he couldn't really breathe that well uh, because of the pneumonia. So instead of waiting it out, we took him to the emergency room, and uh, as they were trying to, they you know, they diagnosed and confirmed it was pneumonia, but as they were trying to draw blood from his rear legs, uh, some veins in his rear legs, they found that there was zero blood flow to his legs. So they came back out, and they told us that Tank's rear legs were literally dying. And then his quality of life would be significantly uh, affected negatively. And Tank, you know, he was 12 years old. Um, the average lifespan of, of a Mastiff, of a large breed dog like that, is eight years, you know. So Tank lived a long, full, happy life. Uh, he's our miracle dog. Um, you know, we want to celebrate his life every day that we can. He overcame um, mange when he was a puppy, and the vets thought he wasn't going to make it. He overcame... Uh, mast cell uh, tumors and cancer uh, overcame that uh, that cancer just spontaneously on his own. He was an amazing miracle dog, um, but this pneumonia snuck up on him, and the uh, vet thinks that his cancer may have come back, which might have contributed to his pneumonia. So we decided to put Tank down um, the day after Thanksgiving here in our living room uh, in our house, and. Uh, Kelly and I, my wife, were, we were a wreck for a week or two, uh, as, as one would, having lost a, a best friend and companion. Um, but again, the, the outpouring of um, support that we've gotten from our friends and family has just been so amazing. And I want to thank each and every one of you who provided us support when we needed it. And also thank you to each and every one of you who knew Tank and who uh, contributed to his happiness in some way. You know, he, he had the biggest fan club, uh, a worldwide fan club. Uh, everywhere we went, people would come up and, and want to uh, pet him, and he just loved it. That was his favorite thing, was to go out in public and see how many people he could get to join his fan club. Um, so, you know, wh wherever you go when you die, that's where Tank is right now, hanging out with all the other dogs and uh, certainly becoming a, a welcome wagon um, and his fan club is, is certainly uh, growing in size wherever he is now. So um, 
you know, when he died, he left a giant space in our house. Um, we no longer had to sort of walk around and avoid this 150-pound body, um, uh, which was common. You know, he, he, we would step around him all the time. So having that, uh, that loss really left a big hole in our hearts and a big hole in our home. And uh, we decided to fill it with some, some more puppies. We have more love to give. So uh, over December, we rescued uh, two two puppies. Um, one is a uh, Pibble Lab mix. Um, her name is Aspen. Man, is she fiery. She's a little crazy pup. Uh, she's about 16 weeks old. And then the other puppy we picked up from a different litter uh, in a different adoption uh, place. We rescued both of them, but from different rescues. Um, the other one is a Pibble Rottweiler mix. Her name is Luna. She's a beautiful black color. Um, so much different than her sister Aspen. Uh, Luna is uh, chill, mellow, um, an observer of others, uh, but she does have a temper, whereas Aspen has no temper. She just uh, is up in everyone's face all the time. So, yeah, uh, you know, we have, and this certainly these two are not a replacement for Tank, you know. Um, you know, we just wanted to do what we could to spread more love and joy. Um, those animals that need it out there okay so that's what's been on my mind uh and that all that stuff has been what has been contributing uh to my inability to put out a podcast recently so i apologize hopefully you can uh feel some um some compassion uh and forgive my uh my inability to put anything out recently um okay so today's podcast let me go and introduce our guest he's a returning guest uh, yeah, uh, Rafael Lancelotta, uh, great friend, Raf, uh, and I apologize, uh, Raf, for just slipping into my old habits and, and referring to you as he. Uh, I really apologize about that. Uh, I will do it. I will not do it anymore. Uh, so, great friend, Raf. Um, he is a researcher and an academic. Uh, he's researching. Um, Raf is researching uh, psychedelics. Uh, he's currently, uh, Jesus, I, I keep doing it again, and I apologize. Um, I'm just, uh, I'm just not really good at uh, at these changes in language. I'm, I'm really doing my best. I promise. Uh, so Raf is a PhD student at Ohio State in the in the Department of Social Work, working on human relationships in psychedelic interventions. Uh, Raph is also trained in somatic, ketamine, and cannabis therapies. Uh, Raph is a board member of the Source Research Foundation, which is a, a group that uh, finds grants and grant money for people wanting to research psychedelics. And Raph is also the founder of the 5-MEO-DMT Forum. Um, I will put uh, Raph's information in the description so uh, so that you can reach out to him if you have any more questions Uh Man, Raph is just a, such an amazing person. Um, I look up to Raphael and everything that is going on in Raph's life. Uh, it's really, really cool to see. Um, but anyway, let's uh, let's dig into this podcast. It's a really, really good one. We covered a lot of things, and uh, hopefully you all enjoy it. So this is episode 102, Conversations with the Mind. Here we go. All right, folks, welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, Shane Lamaster. Today, we are here with a very special guest for episode number 102, 
uh, Rafael Lancelotta. Am I getting that right? I always, yeah. I think I always mispronounce your last name. Is that right though? Yeah, Rafael Lancelotta. Perfect. Awesome. How have you been? I've been good. I'm just, uh, you know, just getting settled here. Um, I just started a, a PhD program at the Ohio State University. Um, so, you know, been going through a lot of transitions uh, professionally, personally. Um, and yeah, I'm just kind of feels like a, a new chapter of my life is starting and um and yeah I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it and of course you know there's all the chaos that that brings as well so learning to to ride all of those waves mm. and how is Iowa I've never um never been Ohio a, yeah Ohio sorry um yeah I, I've never been a huge fan of uh the Midwest in general just because of how flat it is <laughs> You know, and and uh, you spent some time living here in Colorado, so you know the difference <laughs> between those two landscapes. But yeah, how is uh, Ohio so far? You know, it's a very interesting place. Um, I I've found that the people are are really friendly. You know, and I and I I think um, you know I think that it definitely carries the uh, the stereotypes of you know, being more conservative, which, which it is. And, you know, um, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit later about me being a non-binary person, but um, I also have, you know, for the most part, uh, you know, white cis passing. Um, And so within that context, as an outsider, um, for the most part, people are are friendly and and they they do seem to want to help and and in regards to university itself I mean I think it's one of the most supportive environments I've ever um, encountered and and so you know that's really helped me feel like okay you know I can really be myself here and um, if I do venture out um, more you know in more country areas where people may be um, not as exposed to different types of people or, or different ideas, you know, um, you know, I do have that privilege to, you know, not have to appear in that way. So, um, so for me, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's definitely an interesting place. I'm excited to get to know it better. And uh, more than anything, I'm, I'm excited about the, you know, the work that, that I'm, hopefully going to be able to do here. Mm-hmm. When you're, when you're describing, you know, the difference between like university setting being very, um, very supportive and then versus the countryside, like it, it reminds me, and you have this ability to, um, you know, to, to appear a certain way based off of, you know, the population you, you plan on encountering it. It's kind of like, like you're a shapeshifter, you know, depending on where you, <laughs> where you uh are gonna go um i don't you know i i can't even imagine what that is like for myself because uh no matter where i go especially if i know people are going to be ultra conservative and look at me uh you know strangely because of my tattoos or something like that like i love to put myself in those positions because i like to challenge people's um in the box type thinking um, so when I see that look on their face, like, who is this guy? You know, uh, it, it, it sort of gets me going because I, I know that I'm, I'm challenging the way that they think. Um, so that's, that's interesting to me, um, you know, but yeah. So 
Anyway, um, but the first question that I, I really wanted to ask you, which is uh, the same for every guest, and I asked you this last time you were on the show, uh, and so I'm curious to hear how how your answer may have changed from last time, you know, going through all these different transitions and uh, having, you know, a number of more years under of experience under your belt. Um, so the question is, you know, the podcast is called Conversations with the Mind. And I'm wondering, what does that phrase mean to you these days? Uh, so I don't remember what I said last time. <laughs> me neither, but, but it'll be uh, best. Yeah. Uh, so for me, a conversation with the mind, um, I'd have to say is, is a conversation with all that is, uh, and, um, a conversation with, you know, the dream that one is living. Uh, and so, yeah, I think for me, um, and I, I think all conversations, right. I mean, we, if, if we take on this idea that we're all um you know a singular consciousness that's been separated and, and we're getting to interact with ourselves uh then a conversation with the mind is you know different parts of this mind getting to connect just in the same way that different parts of the brain connect um and so uh so yeah i, I think conversations with the mind is an opportunity to uh, connect these different parts of of existence and, and you know you and I have different experiences uh walking through the world and so I, I think this would be an opportunity to explore that mm. yeah I think and I you know I've said that a number of times too on the podcast and uh you know I'm sure there's listeners out there that think you know when they hear the concept of uh you know we are all different pieces of the same consciousness it's like what like that makes no sense at all but i loved your analogy with the brain right uh and the brain connecting because that's that's something that we all you know feel like we have a little bit of understanding about and if you can think about it like it, that's a great analogy because different cells uh, you know the brain contains you know billions if not trillions of cells and um you know each cell thinks that it is the center of the universe you know that it is uh it is an individual cell when really yeah it's an individual cell but it's all part of the same brain right and so we're we're the same thing essentially if you if you blow it up to scale that we are these individual nodes that are part of this one giant consciousness or you know brain which i i love that analogy and it, i think it would be easier for people to understand what we're talking about um, with that. So thank you for that. That's, that's a great one. Um, yeah, I've actually considered um, renaming the show um, Conversations with Consciousness uh, only because uh, through my conversations with lots of different people about the mind and consciousness, you know, it's, it's become pretty clear to me that mind and consciousness are two different things, but that they, I mean, they're they're still part of the larger oneness, but uh, mind is almost like it's it's a tool, it's a cognitive thing that we engage or that we can enhance or that we can strengthen. Um, but consciousness itself is like that qualia, that that experience uh, of present moment awareness, you know, and that is 
uh, it's different than than a tool. It's it's an experience. So I've actually thought. But the about, thing yeah. I would say, yeah. just to devil's advocate, the the thing that is interfacing on your podcast is the mind, essentially, right? If yeah. if it was conversations with consciousness, we'd probably be silent. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, that would be a pretty boring podcast. Right? <laughs> Um, no, but you're absolutely right, you know, because thoughts travel through the mind and the mind is what puts our thoughts into words and mm-hmm. helps us, you know, uh, interact with each other. So, no, you're, you're right. Thank you for convincing me otherwise. <laughs> anyway, if I, if I had to change the name of the show, it would be a, it'd be a nightmare to try and remarket and rebrand and all that stuff. So I'm, I'm just going to stick with it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's good. It would be interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go back and listen to your original answer and see uh, how close they are together. But um, I like where you're at with it. Yeah. One thing that I would like to, since since we since we do do this podcast as more of a conversational mm-hmm. uh, piece, I'd like to just at least put this idea out there, um, which I think you know other people may have thought or may have encountered um but a lot of you know uh, the way that i've kind of been thinking or conceptualizing about how our experience is structured you know and i think we may have talked a little bit about this fractal nature of reality but you know what you were you were saying that how uh you know when we when we zoom out or when we put to scale, you know, we can see that humanity, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but humanity is an organism, Mm. uh, one organism. And if we look at how that organism interacts with the other organisms on this planet, it's much like the way the organisms in our body all interact. And so if we can start to see those interactions and see them mirrored um, in the interactions between you know, planets and stars and, and the galaxy, you know, we, we do see that we are um, many interrelated systems, you know, all connected to one another. And, um, and yeah, I don't know. I've just been kind of thinking about that. And, uh, and then, you know, how that relates to uh, consciousness. Like I've been thinking a lot about, the experience of this life as uh, like a stable dream state, you know, or, or a persistent dream state. You know, we, when we sleep every night, we have what I would call unstable dreams. And when we wake up every morning, we are in this stable dream. You know, we return to this uh, stable uh, dream state that we that we share and and within this dream state there are certain rules and and logic and patterns that you know that this dream requires for us um and so one of the things that i've been finding really interesting is to consider that all of the things that we construct within this dream um follow the rules of that dream and therefore you know we can't actually step outside of it um, and so, you know, I, I think that there is t- to some degree, there is a, a, a desire to step outside of a thing in order to measure it better mm. or to understand it better. 
Um, and that's kind of, that is the limitation that we're at. Uh, and simultaneously, um, I think that it, it offers a really big invitation to fully participate um, in the dream. And, um, and I think, you know, when in, in the thinking of awakening, you know, awakening in this dream, um, it's, it's not the process of like waking up when the dream ends because the dream is, you know, it's a persistent dream. We're, we're in it. Um, but the process of waking up is, is more of the process of recognizing the dreamlike quality and recognizing um, what it is that is being taught in every iteration and every interaction and every part of this dream. Um, and how can we uh, be, you know, open to those processes and how can we be open to what it has to teach us? Mm. Um, and and, uh, and I, so for me, like, you know, in, in my own journey of trying to understand and trying to gain uh, a sense of understanding of my own experience and everyone else's, um, it has, and, and we did talk about this in the last podcast, but it has brought me ever more deeply into this concept of relationship um, and, and to connection, you know, because, uh yeah, I mean, I, I, I found myself um, deepening into that. So uh, I, I don't know. I just wanted to kind of, I know last time we, we did, from what I remember, we did do a little bit of a, a uh, philosophy of, of existence. And I wanted to touch back into that since, since we're comparing the two. So. Yeah, absolutely. And that's literally what I think about 90% of the day. You know, me too. Philosophy of existence. Like, what is this thing? Um, so you said so much that I want to touch on there. And I want to rewind back to the, to the beginning of what you were talking about first, which is this idea of, um, you know, in a fractal way, zooming out and seeing the human race as an organism, right? Um, because we, we're so trained in our experience to see, uh, you know, maybe our community as an organism, Um and some of us not even at that level, maybe just our body as an organism. And, you know, it surprises me how many people still don't think of their human flesh body as a system of all these different organisms, you know, where most of our body is not even human material. It's like bacteria and, and all these creatures that work together in symbiosis to keep us alive. Um, but, you know, I think that um, your point hit home for me. And I think it could be, you know, hugely important for saving our species in general and saving the planet. If we can enter at least entertain, if not live into this idea that the human organism as a collective, that we are one of many organisms on this planet and think of the planet itself as a living organism, like a like, like the earth is a body, right? And we are just one organism or one system that influences this big, larger body, right? But any one of those systems that collapses can kill the whole body, right? The same with like our human body. If, if my liver fails, the rest of my body is going to fail. Um, if the human race fails, 
in you know in in keeping our environments clean and and treating each other right and we don't blow ourselves up here or something like that then the entire planet entire planet body can die and then blowing it up to to even larger i love where you were taking that and you you briefly touched on that but yeah um in, in past years, I didn't give much uh, credit to uh, astrology at all. But, you know, after seeing some of the things that I've seen uh, in, in non-ordinary states and seeing how, you know, everything from electromagnetism to um, light waves to, uh, you know, vibrations in the atmosphere all have like a butterfly effect on things across the universe, you know, that that these planetary bodies that may be many light years away still are affected by, you know, our planet and our solar system and the things we do here and vice versa, we're affected by them. And we can think of the, the galaxy as another body, as an, another system. Um, so I love that, by the way. So I, I just wanted to point to that. But uh, I really wanted to dig into this, this idea that you brought up, um, which I totally agree with you that li this life, this waking life, this conscious life that we all um, think is normal is uh, like a persistent dream state. Um, I've commonly thought of that. And I think a lot of Buddhist teachers talk about it in that way too. You know, that you know, Nirvana is an enlightenment or an awakening. But, you know, you're right. You can't, you can't, it's not about awakening from the dream, right? It's about awakening within the dream. And I think of just like in my sleeping states, uh, if I'm lucid dreaming, it's because I have become aware within the dream that I'm dreaming. And then all of a sudden I have all these magnificent powers, right? I can fly, I can breathe underwater, I can do all these things. And it makes me think now that you bring that up that when we are truly awakened, when we can awaken within this living dream, I wonder if we can get some kind of superpowers, you know, or, or you know, learn how to, learn how to um, bend the rules that you're talking about, right? The, the rules of physics. And you did mention one rule. You said one rule is that we can't escape it. Um, and I think, I think that's right. You know, we well, we, we, I would say we can escape it uh in some ways but but i think um we always return to it mm. you know um you know like we can escape into fantasy there we, sure. we have dissociation um there's lots of ways to kind of temporarily forget um there's this one guy uh, i really loved his uh his name is animalai swami and um he has a, a little book called Final Talks. And one of the th things that he describes is the, the concept of God. And so, and he says, yeah, you know, God is, is like a lantern in, in a dark room. And, you know, you can, you can look away from it. You can spend your entire life, uh, like, pushing yourself into the dark corners of the room but the light will always be there. That is the only thing that is actually true, that is persistent. And so, and, and so he essentially talks about, you know, how so much of existence is actually the creation of illusion. Um, and, 
And so this idea of illusion, I think, is is one that's really interesting, you know, to play with. And um, and I think the the idea of awakening is is really being fully in the present and, and fully uh, aware of you know the fact that you know oh I'm in this dream I'm aware that I'm in this dream and I don't quite know how I got here but this is where I am you know um, and I think that you know when when that happens uh, like when we're dreaming at night you know there's there can be that that it's a similar kind of feeling where like where you realize you're dreaming but at the same time, I don't think that there's usually that flood of, of like, oh, yes, I'm laying in my bed, you know, at such and such place, right? You just, you just realize that you're dreaming. Mm-hmm. And then that's when the magic kind of kicks in. Mm-hmm. And I think that's similar here, too, is that, you know, we're, uh, there is a, a desire to know, well, where are we coming from? And what are we, if we're dreaming, then we must wake up to something or if we if we become enlightened let's to use that word liberally you know if we're enlightened then then something is magical will happen um and i think it's more that the magic is always happening and it has always been happening and we simply just become aware of it mm-hmm. you know? and and i think not only that i i think that a lot of people you know, there's there's tons and tons and tons talking about, you know, what it takes to wake up, but not many people talk about what happens after that awareness, happen, you know, is gained. You know, like once someone does, uh, you know, wake up, quote, unquote, in, in the stream, you know, what then? Because I think a lot of times, a lot of times people have there's a lot of preconceived notions of what that means and what what how that will change things and i think um i think it doesn't actually change the dream uh what it does is change the awareness Mm. and and i think um the value of it is you know there's to some degree there's a sense of peace but i think there's also a lot of emotion to feel after that kind of um, experience, you know, mm-hmm. things that happen, they're no longer random. You're, you're fully aware that, oh, this is, this is happening because of, you know, this is my dream. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I love that. Um, reminds me of uh, the saying, you know, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Just because you wake up uh, or you you become awakened in this life doesn't mean you don't have to still, you know, live within the dream. You know, you can't just, I mean, I guess some people retreat up into the mountains, into caves, but you still got to eat, you know, you still got to, still got to drink water, you know, or else, you know, you got to play by the rules. You got to play by the rules of the dream if you want to stay alive, you know, um, so tell me more about, so you, I forgot the name of the, the guy that you mentioned, um, Swami. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I But he talked about um, illusion, right? Illusion in, in this waking life. And when you hear that, um, 
you know, because that can be interpreted so many different ways. Like, what is illusion? But when you hear that, like, what what do you take as being um, illusory or um, illusions in this waking life? Maybe things that you relate to or things that that everybody probably experiences, but maybe doesn't see as illusion. Well, I, I mean, yeah, I, th- I think that's a deeply personal experience, right? Mm-hmm. Like what, what illusion is. And, and I think that um, at least for me, uh, you know, it, in my work with in, in psychotherapy, in my work, in my personal work, um, you know, in, in my own personal development, in, in seeing how the world behaves and how things happen. Um, you know, I think that a lot of times uh, we live in these nightmares uh, and we we are very good at perpetuating our nightmares. And, and so, you know, that's not to say that, that, you know, we are responsible for bad things that happen to us. No, I mean, bad things happen to all of us. And, and they're horrible. Um, and it's important that, you know, that we are given the space to feel and to process a negative experience. But I, I guess what I, what I, when I say illusion is that, you know, when that event has, has passed, what is happening right now is stillness. Mm-hmm. And and is like is calm is okay mm-hmm. and so um so i think a lot of times like the we can we can have this illusion of the illusion of separation right uh, when something negative happens um it can be very difficult to number one wrap our minds around how could i have done that to myself Right, because we come back to this idea that you know we're all one thing. How could I have done this to myself? Um, and you know, and I think from that, like feeling the pain of that, and and also like feeling the support that can can then come to for the healing from that. Um, and so, so, you know, I think like the illusion being that perhaps the only illusion is that, um, that anything is here actually to harm, you know, that everything here is, is actually to, to educate We're um, one of the, there's, there's a shamanic teacher that I've, um, attended several of their workshops one of the things that he says is, um, you know, this is like a simulated experience to teach us very important things about love. And, um, and so I try to keep that in mind, you know, it's really hard when scary things happen. It's really difficult when uh, we make mistakes. It's really difficult when um, were misunderstood and the process of continuing to engage and continuing to 
to reach out to others, to receive support through those difficult times and to grow and change and become a new person. That is, uh, you know, I think that is the truth, right? And, and that is the process of shedding illusion and becoming more and more truly uh, who we really are and, and really shedding these, uh, yeah, these layers of, of, you know, of the negative and, and really showing up for uh, the goodness that we are meant to become. Yeah, when you, when you talk about the illusion of separateness, what comes to my mind is, you know, various periods in my life where I've either been in deep depressions or um, feeling suicidal or things like that, and I've just felt so alone, you know? And that is, that's an illusion because I'm, not, I'm never truly alone, you know? Um, there are always others who would be more than willing to help me if I were just to ask for that help. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know, we both do psychotherapy, so we see this with a lot of our clients, but, um, you know, a lot of people feeling like they are alone in their experiences, you know, and one of the, I mean, I know how it can feel that way. And, and to a large extent, we are alone in our experiences in that we are the ones experiencing it. But I always, I also remind my clients, like, you don't have to be alone if you don't want to, right? Like if, if you, if you feel alone, like go share your experience with other people. Um, people are willing to help you carry that weight that you're carrying all by yourself right now, you know, and it, it helps so much. Um, another thing that came to mind was, um, you know, the, the idea of illusion, right? To me, uh, and, and my influences come from so many different places these days, um, from my Buddhist practices, from quantum physics, from, um, you know, all sorts of places. But when I think of illusion in, uh, in this waking life, like I think of, it may seem simple, but like the illusion of fullness, right? So we think that our body is a solid object, right? Or this table that I'm sitting at is, is a solid object, but that's, that's the illusion that 98% of it is empty space, right? Um, you know, within the atom, uh, well, we don't actually know if it's empty or not. It could be full of dark matter or something else, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's an illusion or, um, you know, the illusion that, that what we actually, what we see with our eyes is what is actually there and nothing else, right? When they're, you know, I know from, from some of my, um, uh, you know, non-ordinary states work and things like that, that when you open your eyes and your perception has changed, right, you can now see so much more of what is probably always there, but it's an illusion that our, our brain sort of uh, filters some of these things out for our survival. And so I think of those kind of illusions in everyday life or the illusion uh, that, you know, the human race uh, puts so much value on things like money and politics and things like that. And we think that those are the most important things to this life, but it's all, it's all a lie. It's all like a, like a, yeah, it's all, an, it's all an illusion to what is truly underneath all of it, which you mentioned was, was this love, you know, this love state. 
this connectedness, this interconnectedness. So I don't know, there's so much illusion out there. And I feel like every day, as long as I'm trying to get better for myself every day, I strip away a little bit of that illusion every day, you know, um, but it's still always there. <laughs> You know, I still, oh, yes. I still drive around town and, and feel like, oh, that guy almost just hit me with his car. Well, you know, is that an illusion? Like, does that car even exist? You know, so I'm always stripping pieces away, but there's always, there's always more to work with. Yeah. I, I love that example of traffic because I, so I, you know, I just got here to Ohio and, and my perception is that the drivers here are worse than anywhere else I've lived. I, I grew up in Miami, Florida, and the drivers there are notoriously bad. <laughs> but, uh, but here it's just, I mean, it's terrifying sometimes. And why? What, what's different? Oh, I mean, you know, like, I think the classic thing that I run into all the time is when people are merging onto the highway, um, they expect the people on the highway to slow down for them. Mm. to get on so mm. you know they'll be merging but they won't speed up and you're going the same speed <laughs> and and they're just waiting for you to slow down so they can get on and i've seen so many people you know what and you're on the highway you're going you know 65 70 miles an hour um and and so i see that and i'm like oh my god like what what is going on you know what is this um and yeah, and, and I think, you know, the part of it is like, you know, my body's reaction of like, okay, I got to keep, keep myself safe and not crash. Um, and on the other hand, there's, there's a little bit of humor in it of like, it's just uh, an invitation to pay more attention. Mm. You know, like it would be so much more convenient for me if every time I drove, I could just be on total autopilot and coming soon, Tesla. You know, yeah. Right. I mean, it, it would be really nice, but then, you know, here is this opportunity to pay more attention. And, and, and so I, I was try I start thinking that way, you know? Um, and, and lately, I mean, I, you know, how Facebook kind of, gives you these reminders of like oh you posted this two years ago oh, yeah, yeah. and there was this uh thing that i had posted a while back and it was this video of this uh buddhist monk who uh, did this thing called that they call wandering meditation and essentially they they leave the monastery and with no food no water nothing and they just wander and they get everything that they need as they go which to me at when i heard about that i was like oh my gosh that is the ultimate trust fall mm -hmm. I mean, you just are literally connecting with the organism and you're relying entirely on the organism to sustain you so anyway he he goes on this wandering meditation and and he says that at one point he eats some like spoiled food and he gets food poisoning and he said that he got incredibly sick and he was so sick that he was sure that he was like that he was going to die 
So he's laying there underneath this tree and and he can feel that, you know, he's incredibly weak and his strength is leaving him and right, all that. Um, and he says that he's like, and as I, as I realize like I'm going to die, he says, and I decide um, I'm just going to continue learning. And I'm, and, you know, and I'm always learning. So even when I'm dying, I'm learning. Mm -hmm. And so he, he had this sense of curiosity where he was not resisting this death, but he was just saying, okay, and now I'm going to learn about death. Um, And as he did that, he paid more and more attention to it. Suddenly, uh, you know, there was, there was a shift in his body and he suddenly started to feel strength returning and life returning to his body. And, and um, not that he had healed himself, but that, you know, he, he was like, oh, well, I guess, you know, life goes on now. Um, and so it was such an, for me, like, and I'm still trying to integrate this into my life, but to me, to take every, every, circumstance in life as something we can learn um, and to return to that place of always learning um, to me gives me a lot of hope and to me um, I think really illustrates like the potential beauty in life is that we can always be learning you know always growing always learning always taking something new and uh and that doesn't end yeah it's so powerful for people to hear that i know it's powerful for me to to be reminded of that for sure um so always learning always being curious about uh whatever is going on with you whether you um judge it as good or bad right that's just a judgment right but it's uh in, in a you know, that's a choice, though, that you, you have to make, too, um, whether you learn from it or not. Um, so always learning, always making that choice to be curious and go into something to explore it um, is important. Um, and then always another thing that I always do is remind myself, you know, and I, you, you touched on this earlier, but especially when I judge things as not going my way or, or not going favorably for me, I, I remind myself of the mantra, this is all for my benefit you know, that I may not see what the benefit is right now in this moment, but uh, in the big picture, the way that things are going to line up and, um, you know, that it's all for my benefit. And, and I go back to, I'll go back to the traffic as an example, right? Because everyone can seem to relate to that, but we've all had those days where we're on our way, we're, we're in a rush to get somewhere and we hit every single red light on the way to our destination. And we're just getting so furious. Like, why me? Um, and, you know, we don't know the big picture because maybe it's this red light that's stopping me here that is preventing me from getting uh, hit by a drunk driver a mile down the road, you know, whereas if it was a green light, you know, I could be dead in, in a couple of minutes. So I always try and remind myself, you know, this is all for my benefit. And then the second step for me is to ask that question of like, what can I learn from this? You know, what is this trying to teach me? And usually, you know, unfortunately for me, uh, pain has been a big part of my life, physical pain, emotional pain, um, spiritual pain. And so 
I ask myself after, you know, I tell myself this is all for my benefit. I say, what is this, what is this pain trying to teach me? You know, what am I, what am I, what am I, what's being said in front of me for me to observe and to learn from? Uh, recently in my meditations and uh, journey work, I very intentionally go in and ask, um, you know, I, I say, you know, I have a little chuckle and say, you know, I know that most of my life I've learned a lot of my lessons from pain and I can learn very well from that, but I want to learn through joy now, you know, so please, please help me uh, learn through joy in my life because we can learn that way too. Um, it's just like I, I'm a stubborn Scorpio and I need someone to, you know, I need my head bashed against the wall before I uh, get the picture sometimes. And I'm trying to pick up more on more subtle um, learning lessons, more subtle energies to be able to learn those things. Um, yeah, that's all really awesome uh, advice for all of us to hear. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, yeah I, I love that. Um, I, when I, I, I always think of pain as a, a reminder to slow down. Mm. Like when there's pain, it's usually something is happening too quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or something has, you know, jar, you know, you push too hard. And so, um, so that, for me, it's like, it, it's tough because sometimes it, it, you have to really negotiate that, right? Because, um, you know, if you're having a, a back pain or something like that, I mean, you still have to you still have to use your back. So you have to kind of negotiate your way around it. Like, okay, I'm going to stretch as much as I can. I'm going to fix my posture. Um, and yeah, I, I think that, that, uh, that pain is really the invitation to slow down and look more closely so yeah and i love the i love the idea of learning through joy sorry oh yeah i was just gonna say and not turning away from pain either you know like uh but not perpetuating it yeah totally yeah i think you know it's partially um you know survival mechanism conditioned into us to turn away from things that hurt or that are painful um to avoid those things. But in my experience, it's, it's usually been the most challenging things, the most painful things that I've gained the most insight about myself through, right? Like uh, it builds, it builds character for me. It helps me understand like how resilient I really can be. Um, Helps me understand like, wow, my mind is a lot more powerful than I give it credit because I can overcome these things. Um, But also you're right, like not perpetuate it. So um, you know, I hear, uh, you know, in these, these stages of acceptance, um, that, that, uh, a lot of my Buddhist teachers have talked about where you feel pain, uh, emotional pain or physical pain, and you, you eventually want to get to a point where you, uh, where you love the pain, right? Because it's a part of you, but I tell people, uh, you know, without any context, I'm like, yeah, love, love the pain. And they're like, what you masochist, <laughs> you know, that's not what I mean at all. Like, I don't mean like, like, uh, fall in love with the pain and, and go seek out, uh, causing more pain and suffering to yourself. Like, no, don't do that. But when it does occur, like, there's no reason for you to run from it. Um, if you go towards it and get curious about it, become an expert in your own pain. And then eventually you find, you know, by becoming an expert and by befriending it, like, by speaking kindly to it, by um, doing things like with a sore back to to rehabilitate that pain a little bit, 
uh, it takes some of the power out of the pain. It takes some of that, that experience, uh, the cripple, the crippling pain out of it. So then you reach that level of befriending your pain. And then when I mean, you know, be fall in love with your pain, I mean, you know, try and find a place in yourself where you can love every aspect of yourself, including the parts that hurt, including the parts that you don't necessarily, um, you know, look in the mirror every day and, and, and like, like we need to find a place of, of love for all of it, right? Because without, without all of it, then we are incomplete in some way. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, okay, so we've, we've gone down quite a rabbit hole and I want to make sure that I get to some of these, some of these things that I want to talk to you about. And the first thing I want to talk to you about is uh, your PhD. Um, so much congratulations for you for getting into that program. Um, have you started your classes yet? So I've not started classes. Um, I have started my uh, research assistant position. So, you know, I, I have a, that's kind of how I'm paying for it is, you know, working as a, as a GA. Um, and so I have some really cool projects that I'm starting to work on. Uh, you know, we just got funding to do um, research with uh, psilocybin for veterans. And um, we also have gotten funding to put together a 5-NEO DMT study. Wow. So, um, so that's kind of on the horizon, which is, which is amazing. And, you know, feels like, you know, a, a dream, dream come true, you know, many years uh, working towards that. Um, and, you know, and I'm also currently working on a project uh, to put together a survey to understand uh, the relationship between um, psychedelic experiences and gender and sexual identity. Mm. Uh, there hasn't really been much research in that area. So, um, so I'm, I'm really excited about all of that. Um, and, and I'm definitely, you know, even just in this first week, I, it's really feels like uh, entering into the process of, of just not knowing anything, you know, uh, and, you know, and even for someone who has been exposed to a lot of this stuff, you know, I still don't barely scratch the iceberg when it comes to statistics and, um, scientific writing and and academic writing and, and so on. So, so there's, yeah, so I'm definitely, I definitely feel like, you know, a small fish in a big pond and, um, but I, I do feel like I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be. And I, I do think that I, you know, I'll have the opportunity to make a, a positive impact here. Yeah, I'm sure you will. And get used to that feeling of being a small fish in a big pond. It doesn't go away. Uh, it often, in my experience through my PhD program, it's, it's intensified quite a bit. Like the more conferences you attend, the more PhDs that you meet, uh, you realize like, wow, like uh, this, this world of academia is, is really big and it goes really deep. Um, so cool to hear that you, you know, you'll be doing your GA work on your topic of interest, you know, with psychedelics. That's so cool. My GA was um, 
not like that. Um, I was doing most of my GA work um, on child welfare issues, which I have uh, a lot of experience with in my early career, um, but it's not uh, necessarily the the interest that I, I hold from a, the future direction of my career. So it almost felt like I was um, backpedaling a little bit in my GA, but you got to do what you got to do to get the degree paid for, right? Because it's not cheap. Um, so, you know, obviously I did that work and, and it was great. I worked for a great team, but I'm so stoked for you that you found a GA position that is that is right in line with your, your interests anyway. Um, I look forward to hearing about that work. And your, your project on um, gender identity and psychedelics really fascinates me. And I have a ton of questions um, just about that in general. And, and hopefully you're at a place with it right now that you can, you can talk about it without uh, you know, giving away any trade secrets or anything. Um, but it, what interests me is, um, so a number of things. Number one is um, helping with uh, trauma that may come along with with that. So being, you know, maybe maybe you feel like you have been a, a different gender your whole life, but you have been unable to come out and tell anyone about it, or others in your life have uh, put you down for that, and you've experienced some sort of trauma in that way, even hate crimes, that kind of thing. That psychedelics have huge potential for healing for that kind of trauma, uh, you know, sort of similar to PTSD with veterans um, in that way. But also what, what fascinates me is um, that, you know, with psychedelics, when we take them, they can oftentimes show us parts of our own subconscious that we are blind to or that we refuse to look at. So um, maybe somebody who has been questioning their gender or questioning their sexuality, they may take a psychedelic and then all of a sudden it is revealed to them or they may live out that, um, that, that, uh, that identity for an evening. Um, you know, while they're under the influence and just feel like I'm finally home, like I am, this is who I'm supposed to be. And then the psychedelic wears off and they're, they're back to um, baseline. And now they feel like, well, now I'm, I'm kind of lost because I had this wonderful opening experience last night where I got to, you know, be the gender that I felt like I should have always been. But now I have to act like I'm this thing again um, that I'm not, you know, so it's fascinating. You know, you can go so many different directions with that. I'm wondering, like, if, if you can share about it, what are your, what are your primary interests in, in that intersection between those two things? Well, I'm still in the really early stages of it, hmm. but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think all of what you described, you know, I think all of that applies here. Um, you know, I think that there, there has been some anecdotal you know, stories of, of, um, you know, either trans individuals or non-binary individuals, or also, you know, gay or lesbian individuals who have had experiences with psychedelics, either A, like, that have been really affirming, you know, of, of their beliefs or their understandings about themselves, or B, has, brought to light, you know, truth about themselves. Um, and so, you know, so, you know, I think the, the desire here is to have a better understanding of, you know, um, that relationship there. And I, I think, you know, in the long term, it would be really wonderful to see how, um, 
you know, psychedelics can be used to support people in their process of, of self-knowing, you know, and um, especially in the process of, you know, knowing gender identity, knowing sexual identity, um, you know, because I think that there's a, there's a lot of trauma, you know, that comes with that, you know, being born and, and feeling a certain way and then kind of being shoved into a box and then living this box for a while and then realizing that that's not, you know, that's not uh, congruent. So, um, so yeah, so I, I, yeah, I think, I think all of those things and, you know, I'm, I'm definitely, we're still kind of in a development phase and, and I'm figuring out um, how to put all those pieces together, but uh, but yeah, I'm really excited to be um, putting that project together, and and I'm hoping that it's the first of many projects, um, you know, bringing more of the LGBTQ uh, community um, into the the world of of psychedelic research and and psychedelic therapy because I think um, I think there's a lot there, um, a lot of richness both in terms of you know having more uh, LGBTQ um, therapists, you know, d- doing this work as well as being able to offer these services to people in that community. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and and I think I think that there has been a history of uh, of these folks who have used psychedelics in a variety of, of ways, and and it's been very helpful. But um, but it's not yet in the literature. Yeah, totally. I I love. Um, a lot of the new, you know, the new lenses that people are starting to uh, approach this work with, you know, whether it be LGBTQ or, um, you know, decolonization of psychedelics, um, you know, making it uh, you know, not just for, you know, exceptionalism or, or elitism or, um, you know, bringing in the voices of indigenous communities or of all the different races and how they use these things differently. Um, I lo- I just love seeing all the all the diversity and inclusion that is um, happening, and you know, unfortunately, I I also see um, as you know it tends to go along with these movements. You see a lot of pushback from uh, a lot of people on the other side, um, so I I definitely see that too. We're kind of stuck in their old ways, which is, which seems so strange to me because psychedelics are so opening. <laughs> You know, they, they, all my experiences have just opened my mind to new possibilities. And um, it's very difficult for me to stay uh, closed minded, um, you know, after an experience like this. So that just, that interests me. Um, and you, you talk about identity, and you were talking specifically about gender uh, identity, but um, I think that these, these medicines, uh, or, you know, some people call them drugs or whatever you want to call them. Um, that these molecules can be helpful for, for a lot of people to find their identity, even if it's not gender related too. you know, uh, I know for me, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, I don't know, set in my gender. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but I'm, I'm, I, I feel like I know who I am in that area, but one area that I have constantly questioned, um, you know, I've been a martial artist my my whole life, over 30 years of practicing martial arts, and always in the back of my mind had this imposter syndrome piece, right? Like, 
am I, am I truly uh, a warrior, you know, in some way? And um, when I, when I, you know, when I've taken certain psychedelics in the past and just been in the moment in that dream and truly like lived into that identity as a warrior, like it has felt so good, like so primal, like I'm, I'm like rooted to this earth organism and this is who I am. And there's no question. Right. And um, it just feels so good. And then the next day I wake up and I'm like questioning it again. Um, so, you know, I think it, it's so good for um, discovering who you truly are. And I don't, I'm not saying that, you know, psychedelics will necessarily tell you who you are or who you should be, but it will certainly give you an opportunity um, to explore that, uh, you know, and, and to live out a, a different uh, version of yourself that maybe you haven't given, given voice to. Uh, and maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. But uh, for me, I know that uh, it's been it's been immensely helpful. Um, and I'm wondering for for you, and this is you know this might be a good segue into talking about this. But um, you know, I, and I don't remember when it happened. Um, but recently, uh, you came out as non-binary, um, which that's an amazing and very courageous thing uh, to do. I know I wish it wouldn't have to be like. A courageous thing to do. I wish it would just be, uh, you know, a normal thing for everyone to be able to accept, you know, but these, this day and age people, um, you know, uh, they, they upset me. Anyway, <laughs> um, I wanted to, to ask you, like, have your previous uh, experiences with, you know, non-ordinary states, whether it's through meditation or float tanks or psychedelics or anything like that, like, has it helped you to get in touch with who you really are and has it has it been an impact on um you being able to you know share that with other people yeah i you know i think that you know these altered states really put us in touch with the our, our core selves mm -hmm. and um and i think that you know things get revealed when it's safe for them to be revealed. And, you know, I think that in my life there, there had been a lot of confusion throughout my life um, in terms of the way relationships had gone and, and trying to, you know, always having this feeling that, that I wasn't understood or wasn't seen and, and there was so much, you know, so much around that. Um, and, you know, and, and I think having the space and the, the time and the resource to, to really delve into that and look into that more deeply um, had helped me really start to come to peace with my, my true self and, and that I, that I didn't feel like a man, you know, and I never did. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that that was really a role that had been thrust upon me and not something that I had identified with, um, at any point in my, in my life. And so, um, so yeah, I, I, for me, it was definitely, you know, I had many kinds of experiences where, you know, I could, very clearly feel myself you know in a feminine body and and that really felt 
um, at home for me. You know, that felt comfortable, it felt right, it felt safe, it felt empowered, you know, all these aspects of, uh, of a fully developed adult, you know, that, um, that hadn't really been accessible to me, you know, and, and it seemed impossible, you know, how could I feel that way? Uh, and so to finally be able to experience um, that kind of freedom and empowerment and agency, um, you know, and, and really feeling that embodied feeling of what is right, what is me, what is undeniable, undeniably true, you know, um, and really removing the illusion, you know, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I think that that that's one of the things that, you know, for me, I wrestled with a lot too, was, you know, well, how can, how can this be true if what is visually real, you know, like I have this, um, you know, male body, uh, well, wouldn't the illusion be that, you know, that you uh, identify as a feminine, you know, non-binary person? Um, and, and so for me, it really has been a a big journey of really delving into the root of what is true. And, and, you know, that's one of the things that like, for me, you know, as I have started to, um, connect more with, you know, the LGBTQ community and, and, and connect with more trans folks, um, you know, that, that these are individuals who are deeply looking at truth, like deeply looking at what is really true. And, um, and that what is true is not always what is visually apparent. So, um, so for me, yeah, I I think for me, you know, that, um, that the, the ability to step outside of, of kind of the constructs that had been handed to me and, and been told like, well, this is where the walls are and this is, this is how you have to be. And these are the roles that you have to um, carry out. And, you know, being able to step outside of that and, and say, well, if there wasn't any of these walls, you know, who would you be? Um, and and it was you know uh, the kind of person that that I I knew deep down inside from a very very young age, but um, hadn't had the support or the community uh, to properly explore that. You know? So um, so yeah, I I don't know if that answers the question, but yeah, it does, and and it makes perfect sense the way you put it, like. Like you broke free from the illusion, but the illusion was put on you by other people, right? It's like uh, society was this magician that somehow pulled a, you know, blinders over your, over your inner self, right? And you, you know, wouldn't either wouldn't allow you to see your yourself, or even if you saw yourself, wouldn't support you in, uh, in looking at that. So that makes total sense. Um so glad that you were, you know, were able to break free from, from that society imposed illusion. Um, 
And well, I, I would say, you know, I, I think that it, it's really important to acknowledge, uh, like, the great deal of privilege that mm-hmm. enabled me to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, I... So, I mean, I, I definitely know that growing up, there were many, you know, there were many signs of me as a child, you know, that I was different in a certain kind of way. And my parents, um, you know, I'm, I'm Cuban. And so my, my mother was a Cuban refugee and um, my father is Italian. Um, and, you know, the Italian family came during, you know, the time where being Italian was not something you wanted to be because it was associated with uh, the mob and, mm. and that. And so I had this, I had two parents who, you know, were passing me down this survival trait of, you know, blend in, you know, be like everyone else and, you know, and you'll be okay. And, you know, and that really had served uh, these families well, you know, that, did get them by that did allow them to you know to to give birth to me you know um and so these survival mechanisms that were passed on to me was something that I was living for a long time because it was tied to survival until it was actually getting in the way of me feeling like I was living a life that was fulfilling mm-hmm. You know, and and so, you know, to have the privilege to be, um, you know, to have been born male and and to have been able to, you know, kind of live off of the privileges of being, you know, male passing, uh, white passing, um, and some of, you know, some of the privileges that that afforded me, I was then able to really look deeply and, you know, now live publicly, you know, um, who I truly am inside. Um, And I think that it's really important to recognize that there are lots of people out there who don't have those privileges and who do have to hide to survive. And that I think that it, it is our responsibility as a society and as, you know, as people, as allies, um, to make it safe for people to truly be themselves, you know. And, um, and, and my hope is, you know, in my work in this PhD program, my hope is to you know, to use my privilege in a way that that improves the accessibility of uh, psychedelic treatments and also make psychedelic therapy um, culturally relevant, you know, for people and and doesn't become something that is, you know, a systemic, uh, just a systematized thing that people get put through. Um, So... Yeah, it it just feels important to mention that piece because um, you know I I don't want that to go unmentioned and I I don't want to uh, you know I it, like yes it, it's it was hard for me and and yes you know this is this is challenging um, 
this is a challenging process. And, you know, um, and I, I, yeah, I just want to acknowledge that, that piece. Yeah, thank you. Um, you did mention, you know, the more you speak with um, the LGBTQ community and trans community um, that, you know, what, how did you put it? Um, that they are living uh, like really truthful lives, right? Like, uh, uh, and that, that struck that struck home with me. And, and I truly believe that, right? Like they're living their truest self, even though the illusion is, you know, maybe this, uh, this, you know, this biological body that everyone else can see with their eyes and would disagree. So, and I agree with you, I'm, I'm on your, you know, I don't, I don't like to say I pick sides, but I'm, 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 I'm similar in understanding as you are, right? Because, uh, you know, that's another benefit from these, um, these, uh, psychedelics is that they they help you see through um, the illusion of you know physical matter around us right it's it's uh, you know what we see is is just a small part of the spectrum um, that it's not all the truth and so um, so that makes a lot of sense to me right that we can see through that that sort of uh, biology or we can see through um, you know the the XY and the XX chromosome and that that kind of stuff, even though on paper and according to science and stuff, it may be that kind of scientific truth or whatever, that that is not necessarily someone's internal truth. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and I kind of want to play devil's advocate a little bit here because I want to, uh, I want to come to a deeper understanding and, and how to better talk to individuals who can't, make sense of that, right? Um, you and I can make sense of, of what we're talking about here, but for, for a lot of people, um, you know, who may be close-minded or, or only scientifically minded, say that, no, like you're born in a male body, like you, uh, you have, you know, male sexual reproductive organs, you have this chromosomal, um, you know, combination that says you are a biological male like that is the truth and whatever you believe inside that's the illusion um so there's there's a whole bunch of people out there who are having a lot of trouble getting past that or, or getting past um you know this i guess you know i guess the scientific part right that all this uh you know identity is not necessarily a scientific thing <laughs> you know that we can put our thumb on and say this is what you are you know um that that's a self-determined thing um not entirely okay so so there is like so there you know there is more recent uh science to actually demonstrate that people produce different levels of of sexual hormones um, in their bodies and so um i you know and i i always want to have this paper handy so i can send it to people but um but there there is actual research showing that there are people that have uh that were born you know maybe they they had enough of a certain hormone so that they their physical appearance is you know leaning towards one gender but not enough for them to fully you know um be fully identified with that gender 
And so, you know, so I think that, um, you know, although, right, like you're saying, you know, someone may say, well, they have, uh, you know, the sexual reproductive organs of of this, you know, um, sex, right? The people often say like, oh, well, what's your sex then? You know, because that's not debatable. Um, you know, there are people who, who have different levels of those hormones and therefore it's like, it's actually not even self-determined. It's like the reason why this person is feeling that they're neither male nor female is that um, they don't have the, the hormone levels of a male person or a female person. Um, and so they actually do actually are, you know, their system actually does hold both um in you know in whatever spectrum they're on so so i think the science is actually showing that um that that the biology does reflect this right like this isn't only an internal thing like there is a there are biological mechanisms that um that reflect that and you know for me that was a huge um it, it really was very validating for me because my experience was like, this is what I feel deep down. Mm-hmm. This is what my biology is telling me. This isn't, this isn't something that I am cognitively thinking or dreaming of. It's like, it's a felt bodily sense, you know? Um, so, so yeah. So I, I think that, um, that that would be the first thing that I would, you know, someone who is, maybe scientifically minded who would make that argument, I would say, well, there actually is literature to show that, you know, people actually have different hormonal levels that are going to influence their experience of gender mm-hmm. um, as, as well as, you know, their, um, yeah, just the way their, their body is composed and, and how their emotions are felt and, and so on. Um, so, so that I think that would be the first thing, really, is is that to share that aspect. And I think um, aside from that, like no one, no one knows anyone better than themselves. Right. You know, um, you know, I, I think that it's it's a bit preposterous to to assume that someone outside knows someone better than they know themselves right um obviously we can have a variety of interactions like you know you have interactions with me that over time you can kind of build a sense of who i am um and you know that's kind of how we collectively get a sense of someone's characters is many people have experiences of a person and through those many experiences we get a a picture from the outside Mm -hmm. um but ultimately you know we we are responsible for truly looking into ourselves and understanding the truth of who we are and and so I think that um, I think that's the second piece, you know, that I would say is like, you know, if someone were were to want to argue it or or whatever, um, you know, you nobody nobody has the right to dictate um, 
somebody else's truth, right? You know, and um, especially when that truth has to do with the way an individual perceives themselves, you know, and I think that, um, you know, we are all free to explore ourselves and to know ourselves and to come to an understanding of who we really are, um, you know, and, and uh, kind of for me, like one of the things that I found really interesting is you know, people will um, at times like you change the pronouns that they use uh, multiple times, like not just once, but, but multiple times throughout their process of understanding themselves. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, it, and I, I like at first, you know, like with all of this cultural programming, I, I thought, you know, oh, well, you know, in, in my process of coming out, I was like, oh, well, how could I, you know, put this burden on other people to, you know, use these other pronouns? Um, when really it's like, no, you're just, it's just like telling someone what your name is. You know, mm-hmm. if someone's name is Samantha, you don't call them, you know, uh, Sarah, you know, it, it's Samantha, right? That, so you, um, in the same way that, you know, sometimes people are like, yeah, I don't like, I don't like being called Sammy anymore. Uh, you know, then, then it's just a, it's just an equal kind of respect. And it's really, I think that a lot of people kind of make it like, oh, it's, it's really hard for me, or it's this burden, but really, um, I think that it's really not, you know, I, I think that, um, like sure you know we we we're creatures of habit and so we may make mistakes but i think i think for anyone who like genuinely wants to be you know respectful and supportive like it usually it gets worked out you know within you know after two or three mistakes and and it's usually fine um and it's really not that big of a deal um And so I think like when people are making a really big deal about it, um, you know, I wonder if like there's something that has been repressed in them or, you know, something that, uh, that scares them um, about, you know, this other person's identity. And so, yeah, so I, I think like, you know, it does kind of come to allies, um, to be able to 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 speak about that and to educate others and and to hold people accountable you know like that um like what is um acceptable right and you know um and how do we how do we all want to move forward you know as we continue to grow and 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 grow together well you're certainly giving me an education today so thank you in that um you know, it's, it's, yeah, and it's something that, um, that I am, you know, I'm trying to learn as much as I can about it, because uh, I see, you know, around me, the world is, is changing, and I need to change with it, you know, I need to, um, I already know where, you know, where my place is in it, but that doesn't mean everyone knows where their place is, and some are still discovering that, and I want to be able to help everybody find, their path and find, you know, who they truly are. Um, you know, um, for, and this is sort of tangential, but, um, 
you know, rewinding maybe a couple minutes, you said, nobody has the right to tell you um, who you are inside, or no one has the right to tell you, um, you know, what sort of beliefs you want to follow. And then right away, what popped in my head was, that's exactly what uh, religion is doing. That's exactly what uh, the government is doing. Um, that these these giant organizations, these giant entities, are constantly telling people who they are, what they can and can't do, how they can think, what things they can put in their body, what things they can't put in their body, um, all these different things, right? And um, you know, I know it's not. Uh, I don't mean to you know step step too far away from what we were just talking about, but um, it's happening in in lots of different areas, and um, we just we need to wake up to that. We need to wake up that there are forces out there that are trying to control how we think um, about ourselves, right? There are forces out there that are trying to impose their, you know, put their box around you so that they're comfortable with it, right? When, you know, that's, that's not what this life is about. This life is about uh, maybe not even creating your own box for yourself, but breaking outside of any sort of any sort of box and just following, following your own truth. You know, I think that's such an important message for everyone to, to hear and to take on as like a, one of your main purposes in life is like, follow your truth, whatever that is. Uh, as long as you're not hurting anyone else, you know, follow, follow that truth. Um, mm -hmm. So I just wanted to bring that out to you as, uh, as like a side tangent, but I, I thought it was important. Yeah. And, and yeah. And, and, you know, I think that, for me, this kind of ties into the the ideas of uh, decolonization. Yeah, you know, I think that um, there's lots of indigenous cultures. There's a lot of uh, you know old cultures that have a place for non-binary people, and you know have terms for them. And um, and so for me, what that shows is that you know, this idea of being non-binary or of being, you know, transgender is not a new thing. You know, it's something that has always been a part of the human experience and that, you know, those people have had a, a special place in societies. Um, and it's, it's the Western culture that has you know, really try, really kind of try to narrow things down and really control um, that has tried to take that away, you know. And so I think that, um, you know, I think that this is part of a decolonizing movement is... So do you think it's, it's because they're trying to control? Uh, it makes it easier if things are black and white or if things are binary or if things are put in a box, it's easier to control? Yeah, I mean, I think it is easier to control, you know, I think that, um, and I, and I also think that, you know, it, it really allows to create more illusion. Yeah, because um, the truth is that people are not male and female. Mm -hmm. People exist on a continuum that, that it's a wide expanse between those two. You know, like imagine a world where you know, you didn't have men's perfume and women's perfume, but you just had perfume or you had just had clothes and people just wore the clothes that were comfortable for them and wore the perfumes that smelled nice to them and expressed themselves the way they felt 
mm-hmm. most authentically expressed who they were. Um, and, and so, so that makes marketing very difficult. Sure. And that makes, uh, that makes war very difficult. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, so I think, you know, it, like, it's really about coming to harmony with, with ourselves, you know, with the planet, with, with our own systems, with our own bodies, with our own communities. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's, it's really important that, that, um, I think that's ultimately what it comes back to is, um, is like, okay, well, you know, we're, I think we're reaching a point, you know, where we've, we're so many generations deep that we're finally able to start looking back and seeing clearly what's been happening, you know, what has happened to the indigenous people of, of these lands, you know, what is happening to the people around the world, um, who've been, you know, uh, subjugated and, um, you know, and, and how that subjugation and that taking advantage of has also been perpetuated in our own culture, you know, and, and to where we have people in our own culture enacting those kinds of behaviors, um, you know, not, not intending harm, but causing harm, you know, and so like how we as a collective culture have to start waking up from this culture of harm and culture of, um, you know, of appropriation and moving into a culture that, uh, that fully values every part, you know, and, and, and has a place for every person and supports people wherever they are on their journey um, to, as, as we were saying before, giving them the space to become who they truly are. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, um, I think that that really comes back to the center. And I think that that is, you know, like not imposing things, not imposing what we want on the world, not imposing what we want on our dream, not imposing what we want on other people, but fully seeing and being awake to how it is, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that that is where the magic is, that as soon as we can fully accept things for what they are, we awaken to the magic that it is, mm-hmm. you know? And, and for me, you know, like that fills me with wonder. Yeah. So I have to, and I agree with you. Um, I have to counter on one point though. Um, yeah. Because, you know, I, I look around at the world and, um, you know, in my life and my experience, and this is also because of my um, male white privilege to uh, part of this, but I see a lot of beauty around, you know, I see a lot of uh, wonderful people, people treating each other well, you know, beautiful, green, lush nature. I live right by the mountains, you know, I see the beautiful parts of the world. Um, And you talk about being able to not impose things on the world, but see it for what it is and what it is, is magical. 
I agree with that a hundred percent, but there's, there's this old part of me. Um, and I know that it's still pretty active in a lot of people, but they look around at the world. Maybe they watch the news and they see uh, murder. They see genocide. They see child slavery. They see human trafficking. They see disease and death and all these things and say, how can that be magical? You know, how can that be, um, how can that be what you're talking about, Raph? You know, um, and so this this old part of me, you know, goes comes up with that counter issue. And again, I think it goes back to the very first thing we were talking about is that this is all here for our benefit. You know, and and again, I'm saying that from a place of privilege too. You know, that I'm not in a war zone right now. You know, I'm not experiencing that kind of thing right now. Um, but I have to believe that it is all serving some greater purpose, some greater learning, some greater um, meaning. Otherwise, all that terror, all that horrible stuff is, is, is all for nothing, right? I have to believe that it's, it's serving some kind of purpose, even though I don't want it to continue. Um, I have to have hope in some way that, that it is, uh, it's part of this larger organism, this system. Right? It's like not every part of our human body is is uh, the most wonderful thing to look at or smell or you know there's parts of ourselves that that uh, you know sometimes are are disgusting um, by by any other measure, but they serve a larger function. They serve a a, a part of the system that without it would be uh, not the same. And so, well, you know, you I want, that. yeah, I. <sighs> So, you know, when you talk about war specifically or, or any, any of these yeah. horrific things, um, I, I want to liken them to pain. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they are preventable. Yeah, totally. you know, I think a lot of these things are preventable. And they uh the function that they serve you know um is to teach us you know that uh, number one that it is horrible right we can feel this visceral feeling of like this is not right um that is one thing is is to know that it's wrong and and the second thing is that that deep feeling of disgust and that deep feeling of like wrongness um that should be the motivation to make it stop right you know and i think you know like yes it all happens for a reason but it's not all happening for a reason for us to sit and do nothing it's happening for a reason to motivate us to action and um and at least for me, I mean, I, I try to, I try to take that, you know, from this, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do what I can in the world um, to hopefully make that positive impact and to put more tools into the world um, so that more of this kind of um action positive action that can be taken from trauma you know that like working with people who have been you know 
people in the military, who, the, the moral injuries there, uh, people with sexual abuse, who, you know, injuries there. Empowering people not to, not to turn around and hurt someone, but for, for them to, to grow from that and say, let's make this stop. Mm-hmm. Like, let's, let's really, you know, let's empower people to um, make these things stop, you know, and, and how do we, how do we increase education? How do we increase compassion for people who, you know, maybe don't have the right education? Um, and, you know, like increasing conversations around consent, increasing conversations around, um, you know, all, all these issues, right? Um, I do believe that, that, that these horrible things, um, you know, and, and the horrible things that have happened to me in my life, um, have t- it's taken me a lot of work to find peaceful resolutions for, for like the pain that's happened to me. Mm-hmm. But, um, but for me, like, you know, it's, and it's a very difficult thing, but it's, it's not, it's, it's only going to be better if, um, if I can turn it into something good. Right. And so, um, so that doesn't mean that like, oh, you give this person this, a free pass or something. No, of course you want to hold someone accountable to their actions and you want to say like, that was wrong and that was horrible what you did. But the path forward is then how do we start to create real change? Yeah. And that, that, that happens in our societies, that happens in our communities. And, um, and yeah, that, that's kind of the, the work of the, the individuals. And that's as we heal, we can participate in relationship. We can be a part of this dream and we can learn what this dream is teaching us about love. Yeah, I, I love the perspective you brought of, you know, especially with the idea around war, you know, that it's so bad so that it is trying to teach us um, not only that it is so bad, but that we need to put an end to it. Um, sometimes things need to get worse before they can ever get better, right? Um, unfortunately, like for me, like I'm super stubborn, right? And so um Sometimes I need my circumstance to get really bad before I'm even initiated into change, into changing it, right? Um, and you said, you know, that that might be its purpose <clears throat> is to motivate us to change it. And what popped in my head was like, but that's not the message that we're being given, right? We're being given the message that the reason why we're going to war with so many other countries or we are occupying so many other countries is so that we can have our freedom over here, so that we can have our iPhones, so that we can have our TV, so that we can have our our luxuries. And that's why we have to keep perpetuating these wars. So then the, the, uh, the everyday American um, is like, oh, yeah, well, I love my freedom and I, I, I want my TV and I want my McDonald's and I, I want to walk down the street and not be in fear. And so, yeah, you guys can go wage your wars as long as I'm not affected here. Right. But that's, that's just a, that's a BS story that we're being fed um, because it's all, it's all driven by, you know, money and corruption and, and uh, power and, and things like that, that are illusions, (laughs) you know, anybody who thinks that they have any real power 
is is under a spell you know they're they're under a spell you only have power over yourself really um so i know i took us down a, a dark path there for a minute but i want to bring it back home um and something that um you know it's it's related but it's something that we both really connect on and that is uh social work right so you you chose uh, a pathway to, uh, in your phd program through social work and i'm also pursuing my phd in social work because we see um, we see a lot of these things out in our culture, not only our culture, but in the world that are um, systemic, that are um, you know, community or societal level changes that need to happen. And I know that you, you also have a background in, in psychology and um, psychotherapy, just like I do. So we, you and I have worked for a number of years um, with individuals on individual levels, like, hey, let me help you as an individual change your life around so that it works better for you. But now you and I are sort of um, stepping up our game to this other path of social work, which is is uh, taking those skill sets that we use with individuals. And now how can we change culture? How can we change society? How can we change the systems that we're all a part of that are um, some of the sources of oppression, right? People are oppressive but they come from oppressive systems. Like who do you think teaches somebody how to become oppressive? It's the systems that they're embedded in that have taught them how to be oppressive to other people, you know? So you and I, uh, as, as uh, people going into social work, we, that's another layer of that illusion that we're trying to get super familiar with so that we can tear it down is, is like the illusion of these systems that are perpetuating suffering for all sorts of people. Um, so yeah, talk to me about social work. Talk to me about why did you choose um, social work as as your path, um, and you know what do you hope to do with social work that is maybe different from what you've done so far? Yeah, um, I love that question. Um, so you know there were a few things. I mean, I I never honestly I never thought that I would be. Um, going into the field of social work because, you know, and in the field of counseling, you know, uh, I mean, I, I was, and I still am a staunch supporter of the person centered ideal. Um, but it wasn't until I, you know, I read, uh, looked at, you know, the, um, the values of social work, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, you know, the core values, which are, you know, like service, social justice, the dignity and worth of the person, uh, importance of human relationships, integrity and competence, you know, I was like, oh, okay. So that just like took counseling to like the next level. And, um, and, you know, I, I think the field of social work is evolving and I think it's, it's evolved to the point where it, it now encompasses counseling. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think when counseling and social work, they started out as distinct things. And actually in the history of, so- of counseling, counselors actually started almost more like social workers. Um, and so now I think social work is now, what I think of it is like, it's this amazing um, 
Yeah, I, I think that it's just a very wonderful synthesis of all the, the values in counseling and is applying them, you know, to, to the larger picture, you know, um, because, you know, for me, my work as a, as a counselor, you know, I um, kind of how I viewed the healing process is, you know, you have an individual who is, you know, they're coming to counseling, they're coming to reconnect. We are, we are essentially re-engaging the relational system and repairing whatever, uh, you know, whatever has been broken there, you know, whatever has been, uh, has created defenses in that system. And we're providing a safe place for us to remove those defenses and to create connection again so that individuals can, you know, have relationship. But once, once an individual is able to then have relationship and healing from trauma and now is connecting with other people, there's another layer to that, which is, you know, advocacy and ensuring that like, yeah, like I just supported my client through healing, but like, is the system going to allow that healing to continue? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, I here. I hope this analogy lands well, but it's kind of like a chiropractor, you know, does this chiropractic adjustment, gets the back in alignment, and then the patient leaves and goes goes to work, and the the chair that the their patient is sitting at is like curved like a C and crunches their back back in the same position. So then they go back to the chiropractor and the chiropractor does the adjustment again and sends them, you know, and it, for me, it's the, the chiropractor eventually, if they are a good practitioner, they need to start asking questions about, well, what's happening when you leave this office that you end up in the same exact state that I saw you last time. And that's when with you ask further questioning, then you figure out, oh, that chair needs to be fixed. You need a better chair. And then we need to get a chair that fits your back so that you can hold the, the chiropractic adjustment. And so that's kind of how I'm visualizing and, and um, understanding the healing process. And, you know, and I think that's why for me, like, the way I see my work is I, you know, although my my work is kind of with psychedelics and I, you know, um, I have a a wide range of experience with psychedelics. um, It doesn't end there. That's actually such a small piece of the puzzle because the real thing that we're actually working on here, in my opinion, is we're working towards integrating the values of the value of the person of dignity and respect we're integrating that at the societal level because if we if people are going to be expected to heal we have to have a world that is worth healing too mm-hmm. you know so like if we're the healing too Exactly. If, if we're, you know, if, if we're helping individuals, right, if we're helping refugees, for example, if we're helping whoever, right. Um, You know, for me, like I'm thinking, I, we want to help all people. We want all populations to be served. We want health for everyone. Um, 
then we need we also need to be responsible to hold those systems accountable so that so that we're not just um like counseling someone to uh to be okay with the world sure. you know the way the way it is as it is oppressive um it, it reminds me of this like cartoon that i saw and it was like a picture of like you know person laying down on the couch and the has like a little label like psychiatrist office right psychiatrist is has there's a little pen pad and the, the person sitting on the couch is like well you know uh, i'm just so sad about the world and and the the people the the way that the wars and and uh and sickness and and all this stuff and uh the psychiatrist says uh well there's nothing i can do about all that but i can give you a pill that makes you think that all that is okay mm. And, and I think like the role of social work is to not, is the antithesis of that. You know, I think social work is like, yeah, you're right. Those systems are terrible. They're wrong. And, and, you know, and you have been hurt by these systems that are not supporting you. And, um, and we want to empower you, right? Like, obviously we have to work with the resources that we have you know obviously we can't change these systems overnight but we i think that we want to be an acknowledgement that we are in in the profession of changing those systems and empowering and that part of the healing process is empowering people to make those changes in their society and community you know and, and that i think is the role of of um yeah like we, we want to promote peace we want to promote uh, uh peaceful change in the world and uh, and so for me like social work really is the perfect vehicle for you know at least this aspect of it and i love the fact that social work is an interdisciplinary mm-hmm. um you know field like i mean part of my education is going to be taking classes in an entirely different college you know, so whether it's psychopharmacology or, you know, um, chemistry or, or maybe I will do some classes in, in the psychiatry school just so that I can be well-rounded and so that that way we can bridge all these different worlds and, and be connected rather than divided. Yeah, I agree. I agree with everything you said. And uh, the way that I, I tend to think about social work these days, because I like to think in metaphors, is like, if uh, and uh, timely because the Olympics just happened uh, with my metaphor, but uh, social work is sort of like the stadium in which all of the different disciplines compete and and work with each other. So like psychology is as uh, a track runner and and uh, neuropharmacologist is a high jumper and everything, but social work is the stadium, right? It's the it's the container for all of these different yes. um, yeah for all these different disciplines to come together. Uh, so that they can they can put on a show, you know, and and put on, uh, you know, move us forward. Um, so I want to be um, respectful of your time, and I think that that's a wonderful place for us to end it on a high note, on a happy note, on a positive, hopeful note. Uh, so, Raph, I just want to say thank you so much for for coming back on the show and um, for always just just continuing to grow and evolve as a human being and for being your awesome self, like you always are. 
you had so much to say and so much to contribute, not only to me and my personal knowledge, um, but hopefully to, to the listeners out there too, who may be struggling with some of the questions that, that I brought up today. So I just want to thank you so much for your time and the internet worked for us today. It didn't, it didn't uh, blip out on us. So, so happy for that. Um, so yeah, again, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, Shane, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me and, and thinking of me. And, you know, it's been really awesome to, you know, just to, I mean, we've known each other for, for quite some time. And so it's been really beautiful just to see, you know, um, both of us grow on our, on our paths forward. And um, yeah, I'm, thank, I'm honored that you brought me back on and I'm excited to see, uh, you know, what the world of social work brings us. Yeah. And I, I, I want to have you back on in a, you know, in a couple of years or something after you've been in your program for a little while. And um, I'm sure you and I are going to be sharing this space, not only in social work space, but the psychedelic space for many, many decades to come. So uh, cheers, my good friend. Cheers. Thank you so much. Thank you. Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored, as always, by MindOps.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S dot com. Come check us out. We're an eclectic counseling company providing both mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, and military individuals through face-to-face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties, sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement through mental training, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We're available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. Thank you for listening to the show, and please go check us out, mindops.com and the MindOps YouTube page. Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored, as always, by MindOps.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S dot com. Come check us out. We're an eclectic counseling company providing both mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, and military individuals through face-to-face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties, sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement through mental training, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We're available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. Thank you for listening to the show, and please go check us out, mindops.com and the MindOps YouTube page.